0: old school and my favorite interviews are with book authors book club with michael smirconish is now in session my guest is a giant in the field of mental health kay redfield jameson is the dalio professor in mood disorders and a professor of psychiatry at johns hopkins she's a recipient of a macarthur award she happens to be the co author of the standard medical text on bipolar disorder and the author of several national bestsellers, including the autobiographical An Unquiet Mind. Now she's the author of a brand new book. It's called Fires in the Dark, Healing the Unquiet Mind. This is Dr. Jameson. Dr. Jameson, thanks so much for being here.
2: Thank you. I'm delighted.
0: So the book is a cultural history of the treatment and healing of mental suffering, and you write in the third person until you get to about page 161 or 162. It's true, you tipped your hand in the prologue, and so many already know your personal story. But for a reader of Fires in the Dark, it might be jarring when they all of a sudden get to a first-person account that says, occasionally minds crack. Certainly mine did, although it would have cracked anyway on account of my ungovernable genes. What am I making reference to?
2: Uh, You're making reference to the fact that I have bipolar illness. and When I was 17, I got psychotically, suicidally depressed. And then when I became an assistant physician several years later at uh, UCLA in the psychiatry department, I went... Stark ravingly psychotic manic. And uh, it was, as they would say, a crack. What a crack.
0: And, and truly, as we speak, you're one of the world's leading authorities on this subject of, of manic or bipolar disorder.
2: Uh, well, there are many. I mean, one of the great things about the field is actually there are a lot of people who are studying it and who doing just brilliant work, really good work.
0: But for your own personal experience, I mean, you were obviously interested in general in the subject matter, but would you have become the psychotherapist that you've become today?
2: No, and I I certainly wouldn't have studied uh, mania or depression or suicide. I think that I would have, um, I was studying other things. There's nothing more motivating than getting a bad disease to uh, kind of, you know, point in that direction, to studying it. Uh, which is not uncommon, actually, I think, in medicine and science, that people end up studying what they've got or what runs in their family. So um, I I did that, and I've I've been glad I did it since. It's been motivating and just to be able to work with both my colleagues, but most particularly people who have it, uh, the advocacy groups and, and other patients who have gone through the same thing and really have done extraordinary things with their lives.
0: Dr. Jamison, if you and I had had this conversation five, 10, certainly 20 years ago, I think our use of these words uh, would have drawn a blank from much of the audience. But things have changed, and I'm not sure whether things have changed because of general awareness or increased affliction. What's your answer to that question?
2: I would say primarily increased awareness. I think during the pandemic, uh, you know, one of the few good things that came out of it is that people were, very confined to uh, being with their kids uh, and seeing how sick they were and how disturbed they were. All the major mental illnesses first hit in adolescence. So when people were actually confronted with suffering, uh, ordinarily an adolescent will run in the opposite direction of a parent, uh, and they they didn't have that choice. So I think one of the good things that has come out of the pandemic is we're talking about it more. And I think also people are much more aware that they're treatable. You know things you know when you talk about AIDS or cancer or epilepsy, people didn't talk about them very much until they became more treatable. And that's been think, true I think with psychiatricals.
0: You don't think that the the incidence of uh, psychiatric conditions is greater than twenty five years ago?
2: i think I think that there are increased um, numbers, certainly with depression and anxiety, most particularly. The question is what they mean and how long they last. Um, the diagnostic criteria for, for depression uh, are pretty broad. And so a lot of people meet those criteria anyway. And I think that people are perhaps more willing to acknowledge it and talk about it. Uh, I think that varies out on how much the increase is real. I think there's certainly some real increase, but I don't think we know how much. I think what's good is that people are talking about it. And once you start talking about it, people become more aware of it. Um, you know, when you're not talking about it, um, just, you just aren't, you know, facing it.
0: How about the impact of social media, a much talked about aspect of this conversation and one that's led to some states Mm -hmm. banning and the Congress taking action and uh, lawsuits against big tech? Do you see a causal connection in terms of of young adults and a rise of mental health in the wake of this social media reaction?
2: Um, I think a a lot of people would say that I I think I'm not really qualified to talk to that. I, I just don't know enough about it. I think things are in flux. I think Many people would say, of course, you know, the very fact that you are so subject to the kind of awful bullying that some kids are who are already uh, vulnerable. The question is, you know, if they weren't already vulnerable, would there be an increase? And, you know, again, I think that we're in a stage of flux. We've got all these changes, everything from social media to the pandemic and the isolation. Um, and everything's kind of swirling around and I don't think we're going to have real firm answers. I think one thing that is clear is that we need to do something about it. We've got a really broken healthcare system and it's, you know, I can go out and say, you know, gee, get a second opinion or, you know, go see, uh, somebody to talk about these things, but people have incredibly long waits. People can't afford it. So I think that that's what, you know, the underlying problem is, um, Whatever the rates are, our, our health care system is, is just in no position to deal with it.
0: In the new book, Fires in the Dark, up until the point that you reintroduce from an unquiet mind your own story, up until that point you'd been sharing insights gleaned from the, the battlefields of World War I, educating about Sir William Osler, the first physician-in-chief at Hopkins, Dr. W.H.R. Rivers, both psychologist and anthropologist, And then you introduce along the way other healers, be they nurses, priests, physicians, psychotherapists. Uh, What was it about World War One that became such fertile ground for thinking about mental health? There'd been wars before it. What was so special in that case?
2: Yes, certainly there had been wars before it, and 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 there've been you know since time began, starting with the Neanderthals, people have had to deal with psychological suffering. Uh, It's it's nothing new. Uh, One of the things that happened in uh, the First World War is that in terms of psychiatry, um, there were all these advances going on in psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, Jung, Freud, so forth, and European psychiatrists and the neurologists, so that there was this kind of fermenting of the field anyway. And then you had just this horrendous suffering uh, of the soldiers and you know, shell shock, PTSD, whatever you you would call it. And somebody had to innovate, and people had to just deal with this incredible number of um, shattered minds. And as a result, uh, I think a lot of innovation came out of it. Psychiatrists and psychologists learned a lot about um, how to deal with, with that kind of tragedy. And psychotherapy was taken much more broadly into Medical practice than it had been before the war.
0: I was finishing your book this holiday weekend, mindful of the fact that July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd were the 161st anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, which was, of course, the bloodiest oh, single yes. battle of the Civil War and a turning point for the Union. Uh, 50,000 casualties uh, at Gettysburg. And I wondered, I wonder why the Civil War, that battle in particular, were not similarly. Grounds for new thinking about mental health. I'm probably catching you cold with that reference, but I wonder if you have a reaction.
2: No, I think that that I think that all wars have had um, people who have had um, major breakdowns in the middle of battle. I think the First World War was was hit by the numbers of people and the kind of battle. But what you saw in the Civil War was what you saw in, in the Homeric battlefields and and in World War one as well as a lot of medical intervention, a lot of surgical intervention. So there were a lot of things came out of the Civil War uh, from, from the point of view of the history of medicine. Uh, just not in the same level, to the same level as with the First World War.
0: What was so special about Sir William Osler that you wanted to pay tribute to him in this book?
2: Um, he's generally regarded by American uh, psychiatrists and physicians, um, most particularly just general interns and, and internal medicine, as the greatest and most influential physician in history. And he was a remarkably interesting man. He was um, someone who had a very strong belief in um, just how, how to look at patients as patients, all the while being a good doctor. I mean, he was a good scientist and he was a good doctor. But he also was extremely concerned with how how do you make people uh, heal? How do you get them over the pain and suffering in their lives? And if they're not going to make it over that, how do you get them to die uh, with some sense of, you know, uh, less pain and less suffering? But he was somebody who was also deeply read in, in philosophy, poetry, literature, medicine. And he took it seriously. I mean, a lot of people will say they read and, you know... Uh, talk about a lot, but uh, Osler really took it in. And he had treated Walt Whitman. When, when Osler was a young doctor, uh, he had treated Walt Whitman. And um, as, after his son was killed, after Osler's son was killed in the first war, um, he turned back to poetry. And so I, I was using Osler as, as someone who heals himself and healed others, um, but kind of drew deep upon human experience and, and the arts as well.
0: The book is called Fires in the Dark, Healing the Unquiet Mind. Kay Redfield Jameson is the author.
1: This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app.
0: The the, the takeaway for me from the new book, and by the way, the book is called Fires in the Dark, Healing the Unquiet Mind. Kay Redfield Jameson is the author, is that healing tapes many shapes and forms, psychotherapy being just one of them. I mean, you have a whole chapter about the 2019 fire at Notre Dame. You have a, a map of Oz, as in Wizard of Oz, in the book, the book is is deep on a variety of levels. What is it that I'm I'm trying to explain to the audience that has not yet read the book?
2: Um, I think how um, crooked a road it is to heal, and how hard a road it is to heal. But how extraordinarily interesting it is uh, once you get past acute pain, because it's. I think a lot of people will get well. For example, with depression. Um, they will get over it, but the question is: Are are they vulnerable then to another depression? And if they don't get treated, they they probably are. Uh, but how do you make life more meaningful as a result of that? How do you draw from it? I I see it, uh, a lot of kids at colleges because of the age of onset of depression and bipolar and I always say, you know, look, it's hard. There's no question about this. It's not easy going. But once you get to the other side, you can pull from it, and you can use it, and you can. Uh, not only enhance your own life, but you can, you know, turn to others and try and, and make the world a better world. With other people with, uh, you know, try and help other people out. And I think that that's one of the things that uh, it is a crooked path. And I, I think that a lot of what I was looking for was exemplars—people who had done it well, whether they were in myth or people like Paul Robeson who did it through their art and through, I'm sure, raw courage. You know, what is it that makes people
0: heal? You say, Dr. Jameson, in the book, now when I talk with students who have been manic or severely depressed and they ask me how I made it through, I start with the words of Josh Logan, Sloan Wilson, and my psychiatrist. It is hard. You can do it. It is really hard. To somebody who's listening in the audience today and dealing with some of the issues that you write about and are expert in who doesn't think that they can do it because it's so hard, you want to tell them what?
2: I want to tell them it's hard, but you're know, trying to make it sound easier than it is, is a is, uh, fool's gold and it, it doesn't work. And I think if you say something's hard, it means you can, can do it. You know, and I, I believe, I mean, people do it all the time um, across all aspects of life. I mean, the, it, these are really common illnesses. Um, they're really painful. They kill a lot of people, but they're really treatable. And I think that, uh, one of the great things is that you know we're all in it together and it yes it's hard but yes you very much can do it
0: in that line that i read from the book where uh, you wrote occasionally minds cracked certainly mine did although it would have cracked anyway on account of my ungovernable genes if the stigma extends to families and families don't talk about these things then they're they're only making it harder for those who follow in their footsteps to recognize and be able to deal with their own mental illness issues?
2: Uh, no question about it. And one of the things that I think a lot of us recommend is if you've got, for example, bipolar illness is pretty genetic. Uh, runs in families for sure. If you've got it, just talk about it with your kids before they go off to college, you know, just say, look, the odds are you won't get this, but if you do get it, uh, here's a list of names of people at college where, where you can get good help. Uh, always talk to me about it if you're concerned, you know. Uh, but just be direct about it. Uh, n- no big song and dance, but just be very, very direct about it. I'm, I'm often caught up by the fact that people talk about and learn about, parents learn about Mondo Bizarro diseases that nobody ever gets. And they will read about it and obsess about it and so forth. And the most common illness that's going to kill their child or really bring a great deal of pain to their child is depression. And, you know, it's very straightforward how to recognize depression and learn the symptoms of it and learn what treatments are available and so forth. Um, I think it's just a question of of educating people and and making them aware.
0: Yeah, final thought. We're still not there in terms of awareness and ease of conversation when we are at a point where a person would have no problem calling their employer for a sick day because they're blue uh in the way that they would call if they had the flu then we will have achieved where we need to be
2: uh absolutely or you know at a uh, a goal perhaps a little more dramatic than that when we stop having our kids kill themselves because they have treatable illnesses and they haven't gotten treatment. Um, you know, that is just so deeply concerning. And uh, it, it's just something that we need to address. Uh, Congress needs to address.
0: Are you good, Dr. Jamison? Uh, you know, as, as well as could be expected? You've had this incredible career after, you know, your own diagnosis. How are you on a day-to-day basis?
2: Um, I do well. I'm, I'm fortunate that I respond very well to lithium and um I'm, I'm lucky in that regard i've got good care i could afford it um you know and i'm, I'm aware that i'm very lucky in that regard uh, because a lot of people can't um uh, but a lot of people respond very well to treatment you know I mean, it's 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 kind of a myth that you you're always kind of just hanging by uh once you get over your first or second or third episode uh, i think a lot of people do a lot of people have rocky roads um uh, but th- these are really treatable.
0: I wish you good things with the book. It's called Fires in the Dark. It's been a real privilege for me to have you on this program. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you. It's a delight to meet you. Thank you.
0: Kay Redfield, Jameson. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New
1: episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirconish program weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 and anytime on the SXMF. app.
2: Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com.